Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 10th official 7investing podcast. Our mission here at 7investing is to empower you to invest in your future, and we do that by providing a ton of educational content like this podcast, but we also offer a monthly subscription service where our team of advisors provides our seven best ideas in the stock market for just $17 per month. My name is Simon Erickson. I am joined by those other seven investing advisors here on this call, Steve Simonton, Matt Cochran, and Austin Lieberman. Gentlemen, happy Tuesday. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Simon. Hey, Simon. Hey. We have, we have officially survived to double digits, guys. We've made it this long. We're now on our 10th official podcast. That's got to be some kind of milestone. It's, it's the longest podcast that we've ever done at 7investing. That, that is true. Uh, very true indeed. You're going to talk a couple of things on this podcast. We're going to be talking about um, companies that are hitting all-time highs that we think have even more potential to go even higher. We're also going to be talking about some companies hitting 52-week lows. But let's start with the lead story about the market's recent rally. You know, we've seen really in these last couple of weeks a run-up, both in the Dow and the S&P, and the NASDAQ, all are hitting new highs lately, even with a, a kind of a checkered history of, of the American economy right now. So let's start by talking about what do you think about the run-up that we've had recently? Have stocks increased too much too quickly, or are there more gains to be had in the near future? Austin Lieberman, let's start with you. What's your take on this? I was afraid you were going to pick me first, Simon. I don't know. I don't know if the market has run too fast, too soon. Um, and I try not to care that much. And this, this sounds crazy because I'm an investor and my money is invested in the stock market, but I don't invest in the entire stock market. I don't invest in indexes. Everything I do is self-managed and in individual stocks. When we think about the NASDAQ and we think about what happened with the pandemic and the coronavirus, it makes sense to me that the large tech companies like, and we've heard it in their earnings reports, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, those companies, their businesses have actually gotten stronger. And if you think about what goes into that and the fact that they enable the digital world, basically, that makes a lot of sense. So from the NASDAQ, from a technology company's perspective, sure, that makes sense to me that 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 index is, I, I think the last time I looked, it was either flat or positive on the year. But again, I'm trying not to be too focused on that. When we saw the entire market drop, I knew deep down inside that that a lot of great companies were going to drop with it. And with that would come some fantastic opportunities for long-term investors. And that's what I tried to focus on. And um, so I continue to be focused on that, just finding the companies that I want to own for years, not for a 50% return that, that could happen in some of these airline stocks that I would never want to invest in long-term, but for the companies that I believe could return 100%, 200%, 300%. And I'm going to stop rambling now. Somebody else go. Excellent. Excellently done. Even with me putting on the spot like that, Austin, just to throw some numbers to like what Austin was saying for the year, the Dow Jones is actually down 12%. Throughout calendar 2020, the S&P is down 7.4%. The NASDAQ, as you mentioned, up 4% for the year. So there's a little bit of dislocation between uh, the market's largest industrial companies and then also those tech-heavy heavy companies. Steve Symington, what do you think about the run-up recently? I'm nervous uh, about this. And I said so in my advisor update last week. Um, but at the same time, I have repeatedly said that nobody knows exactly what the market's going to do going forward. 
and anyone who says so with any degree of certainty, they, they say they know, um, I'd be very wary of such a prediction, but, um, it's just, I feel like the market is increasingly disconnected from the economy and, uh, maybe reality. Uh, so it, it makes me nervous to see stocks continue to rally like this, but that doesn't mean they can't continue to do so. Um, so as far as, you know, actively putting money to work, um, I, I'm actually continuing to selectively buy stocks that I liked anyway at, uh, at, at lower prices. Um, you know, and sometimes uh, I'll watch, you know, stocks continue to rally. I'll open a real small starter position, something that I can watch. But uh, really for, I think for every dollar I'm, I'm putting to work right now and keeping in mind, I'm also not selling anything. Uh, there's another dollar I'm, I'm keeping in cash just in case we, we get our pullback and that other shoe, shoe actually drops. Well, like, uh, I mean, both uh, Steve and Austin made good points. And I think I agree with Austin in saying, I, I have no idea. Uh, you know, I think uh, just a, you know, a little context, which you guys have already added, um, you know, obviously like the, uh, the massive response to try to slow COVID-19 spread has caused like this massive economic disruption of a scale I don't think any of us have seen in our lifetimes. Uh, so it makes sense that people are confused by the stock market's rise. Uh, you know, between March 23rd and May 24th, the S&P 500 soared 32%. That, that was before today's gains. Uh, so it's up even more now. Um, and, you know, some are chalking up the apparent disconnect of the economic shutdown and the market's rise to this unjustified optimism with investors discounting the gravity of the coronavirus crisis and its likely long-term impact on the economy and stock market. But I think it's misleading to just look at only the market's rebound without looking at the huge fall that came before it. You know, the S&P 500 uh, is still down 13% from its February highs. You know, the, the rally has been furious, but the drop before it was even more terrifying. Uh, so I just think it's important to place this recent rally in the proper context that major indices are still down double digits from their peak in February. And, you know, to be fair, there, there are a lot of positive signs in the economy. Most states and regions have now experienced some sort of phased reopening. And there does seem to be evidence of like a lot of pent up consumer demand. And there's also been positive news about treatments and potential, potential vaccines for the coronavirus. So will we experience setbacks in the future? Probably. But long story short, you know, I have no idea what to make of this rally. It could be justified. It could just be a head fake and premature. But all that means is that the market will probably be lower at some point in the future. And, and that's kind of always the case. You know, you can't let that stop you from investing. So, but for what it's worth, I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah, and I agree with with all the points that you guys made too. I, I think that one that I'd like to to chime in also is that I think that this COVID um, pandemic is is just changing the markets, right? I mean, in so many ways, you know, we're kind of grouping everything together and saying, oh, the market's down, then the market's up. But then you look at pockets of it where you know retail and restaurants have obviously been harder hit, and people have to stay at home. But then when you stay at home, I mean, that's a that's a huge boon for digital media companies or tech companies, cloud-based software companies. I mean, you know, remote work companies, there's different pockets that benefit from things that other pockets are, are seeing as a detriment. So it's interesting, like, like you guys all mentioned the same thing. There's opportunities out there everywhere. And the market is not just completely going up and completely going down. There's specific companies can benefit from this as well. 
And so my second question on the same topic is, you know, we're seeing a lot of people predicting a V-shaped rally at the second half of 2020. Of course, it's pick your letter on what, what alphabet soup, what kind of rally you think we're going to have. Is it going to be a V rally? Is this going to be an L rally? You know, people have different descriptions of how quickly things are going to turn back to normal. And Steve, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to ask uh, uh, Matt and Austin too, are you guys putting money to work in the market right now? You know, even with kind of the the, the market rising in the last couple of weeks, are there still stocks that you're buying? Matt, is there anything that you're buying in the market right now? Uh, no, I'm not, but that's more of a byproduct that I don't have much cash to put to work at the moment, which is mostly due to the fact that I already put a lot of cash to work this year already. Uh, so I still stand by the fact that I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm not trying to waffle there. Um, that's probably my, my phrase of the day, but it just kind of largely sums up how I'm feeling right now. So no, I'm not buying anything right now. I probably haven't for a few weeks. But that's not because I don't like where we're at. It's just because I've already put most of my cash to work already. I'm terrible at keeping cash on the sidelines because I love owning companies that I think are going to grow for a really long time. So I've just continued what I've done since I started investing, which I don't know if I've said this before on this podcast, but I'm the youngest one on the team. I'm only 31. So I have a lot of years ahead. Um, again, I mean, every time I say that I'm kidding, but it does age and your timeline and your perspective is really important. And I have tried to guess when the market and my stocks were going to go up and down in the past and I'm really bad at it. So I've just given up and decided that I'm, I'm going to own the best companies that I can think of. And I'm going to keep adding to my portfolio every two weeks when I get paychecks and I'm going to add to the, the best company that I can think of at that time, because the, I guess my, my fear, and I guess you can call this FOMO or fear of missing out is that I'm, I'm not going to invest in a company that turns out to go up five times in value or 10 times in value, because I thought the market was it was, it was 10% too expensive or something like that. And that's just, to me, a silly reason not, not to buy. And I think that's actually to your benefit, Austin, um, is there's really no time like the present. I cannot count how many times I have not purchased a stock because I'm waiting for it to pull back. And then I just, <laughs> I watch it rally and regret it. And, uh, you know, there's been other times you buy a stock and it falls right away and you're just frustrated. And, uh, you know, that's why it's sort of like a phased in approach for me all the time. And, and uh, I, I really think that is the best approach is just to continuous, continuously buy in up and down markets as you have money available. Um, I mean, that's a fantastic approach. Just dollar cost average your way in. And, uh, and I think that's a, that's a great way to do it. And uh, that's, that's what I've always done as well. Yeah, that's so had, true. That's so true, Steve, you know, and Austin, both what you said. I think Charlie Munger put it best. You know, the big money is not in the buying and selling, but the waiting. You know, as an investor, I think all we can do is focus on the long term, buy great companies with wide economic moats uh, or durable competitive advantages and, and hold on to them. You know, and, and like, you know, past results don't guarantee future performance, but Time and again, investing in the stock market has played out well for American investors with a long time horizon. You know, and many things can happen. You know, like nobody saw this coronavirus p 
pandemic happening and, and who's to say if, if there might be a second or third wave or, you know, a million other things can happen to derail uh, the stock markets in the future. But, um, but after two world wars and a, one great depression and a, a cold war with a hostile nuclear power that lasted for decades and many other crises, you know, the American stock market has always delivered tremendous gains for patient investors willing to stomach daily volatility in the stock market. Yeah, I definitely agree, Matt. I, I mean, just some interesting data points about it, just to show that like the economy is not permanently impaired. We, even though we've seen stocks sell off and then kind of recover, when you zoom back out and look at it, I mean, this is something that, that hasn't permanently impaired the American economy. I mean, we've still seen that the consumer makes up 70% of the US GDP, right? And we just heard from Marriott that they're starting to get occupancy rates from below 10% to up to 25 or 30% now. So you're starting to see a recovery even in, you know, travel and regional booking companies. Um, I personally put some money into a digital advertising company last week because they're starting to see companies advertising for their businesses and, you know, going after the consumers again. I think that it's not just um, dart tossing where you could throw a, a, a dart at a dartboard and find a winning company in the middle of March when everything was completely sold off. I think it's more of a stock pickers market now. We have to be a little bit more selective, but I definitely think the opportunities are out there. Austin, do you have something you want to add to that too? Yeah. The last thing I was going to say is, is again, I'm always basically always buying regularly every time I get a paycheck. The one thing that I also do, and this is how I think I'm able to withstand this volatility and be okay with my portfolio going up and down down 20%, down 30% sometimes, and, and it has recovered all of those times. The reason I'm okay with that is because I have I don't have any money, and we, we talk about this a lot. I don't have any money that, that I know that we're going to need within the next three to five years. So that is for if I needed it. When we were going to purchase a house, I made sure that whatever money we needed for the down payment wasn't in the market. If I was thinking about buying a car or sending my kids to college, I would not have that money in the market. That is not timing the market. That is just, for me, good, smart asset management, basically, that enables me to invest and keep investing and be an investor for a lifetime, hopefully. Well, definitely some great points made there. Let's move to the second segment of our podcast here, of our 10th official seven investing podcast. Let's call this all-time highs because there's a lot of optimism. You know, we've been talking about the doom and gloom. Okay, the market sold off. There's a pandemic, but there's also a lot of stocks that are hitting all-time highs or at least 52-week highs right now. And a lot of these companies we actually like. I mean, a lot of people might look at a a chart of a, of a stock and say, oh, I'm going to wait for a pullback or, oh, it's, it's, too, it's at the high point of the 52 weeks. You know, I'm not going to buy right now. But for us, a lot of times that's actually an indicator of strength uh, where that company has more options available for financing. They're in a position of, of, of power in their industry, whatever it might be. We like to see a lot of those companies that are hitting those highs. And so my question in this segment for the team, and Steve, I'll start with you on this, is what's one company that's either hitting a 52-week high or an all-time high that you're a big fan of right now? Chipotle, uh, Mexican Grill keeps coming back uh, on my radar. It's amazing, actually. They've succeeded in spite of the shutdowns and social distancing. And I think they had 100 stores that were temporarily closed. Um, but thanks to their sort of omni-channel approach, um, when they released earnings on April 21st, they were continuing to open new locations relative to, to uh, last year. Even as around those uh, 100 stores remain closed, uh, those closures are mostly in malls and shopping centers, which is understandable. 
and uh, digital sales for them soared more than 80% last quarter to their highest level ever for the company. I think it was just over 26% of total sales. And, uh, you know, comps were up, um, I think, 3.3%. Uh, revenue grew 7.8%. They're, they're really making just as much money as they always were in spite of all this. And uh, funny enough, for those of you who've been listening since the beginning of our podcast, I've actually singled out Chipotle twice. Once was in our very first podcast about how COVID-19 affects our investing approach. That was in late March. And again, two weeks later, uh, when Simon and I discussed our four big trends accelerated by COVID-19, I was talking about uh, fast casual uh, restaurants and restaurant names that were really well positioned for this. Uh, and actually shares are up 53% since that March podcast, more than 30% since that April podcast. Um, but I, I really do think um, with the caveat that, you know, past performance doesn't guarantee future results. I think Chipotle's got more room to run uh, even after briefly touching their all time high. Mongo database ticker MDB is a company that is, I think it's about 1% off of its all time high, but I'm still going to call that all time high. Uh, and just tremendous runway for growth. The, what the company does is they make unstructured, they have software that uh, provides unstructured databases for companies. And what these databases allow is for new age technology companies to create all of these new applications that people are doing. And it's used a lot by e-commerce and a super popular game, Fortnite, is built using Mongo database uh, because their type of database and the speed and security and reliability is is the best thing for it. Uh, and I just believe that, that that stuff is going to continue to be more and more popular in the future than it is today. They're disrupting the industry. Um, they're a leader in a lot of industry ratings like Gartner and Forrester and different companies like that. And uh, the comp- company is going to continue to disrupt, I believe. You think they've got enough of a head start on the competition, Austin? You mentioned that they're ahead of the, on the charts for a lot of those uh, independent researchers. Are they ahead of Amazon, all the other people trying to do the same thing? You know, Amazon came out with a, a competing NoSQL database or unstructured database. It was, I think, like a year and a half or two years ago now, and, and their stock got crushed. Um, but since it's recovered and they continue to work with AWS, they were just named uh, the Google Cloud Platform partner of the year or something like that in the marketplace. And uh, I'm going to let the business tell me if, if they have enough of a lead or not, if they continue to execute, then, then yes, they do. If not, then, then no, they don't. There is um, there's, there's definitely competition out there though. So it's something to keep an eye on. I'll throw out Skyworks solutions uh, though. I have to admit it's still not quite uh, where it was earlier this year. It's, It's very close. Uh, Skyworks Solutions produces innovative analog semiconductors and RF solutions that enable wireless connectivity in mobile devices. So basically, there's there's chips for everything. There's memory chips, there's processing chips, there's graphics chips, and Skyworks makes the chips that allow mobile devices uh, like that are in most of the smartphones we have to connect to wireless signals. And that can be the 4G wireless signal or Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or, or any of these signals uh, that we need in, for our mobile devices today. Now their sales are lumpy. Uh, they're dependent on releases from major smartphone makers and the worldwide market for smartphones is now fully saturated. 
So there's no more growth in finding new users for this market. So this isn't like a story about looking at like the trailing five years numbers and how it's like this uh, steady onward march in revenue growth and earnings growth, but it's a story about a future catalyst and that catalyst is 5G. So there's two main points why I really like Skyworks solutions here. Uh, one, there's gonna be more Skyworks content in each smartphone. So consider that in 4G phones that Skyworks supplies to right now, they might supply 40, fil 40 filters on average. In a 5G phone, they're gonna have to supply 70 filters. Uh, they supply 15 bands in a 4G phone. In 5G phones, they'll have to supply 30 bands. They supply 10 switch those on average in the 4G phones. Uh, in 5G phones, they'll have to supply 30 switch shows. So it doesn't take a, an engineer to realize that this is a significant progression in both uh, quantity and complexity. And that directly translates into more revenue for Skyworks. So in 3G phones, Skyworks was compensated or provided about an average of $8 for each smartphone it outfitted. And for 4G, that amount more than doubled to $18. Well, in 5G phones, Skyworks management is projecting they're going to average about $25 per phone, which is a 40% increase in revenue generated per phone. And the second catalyst from 5G will be that more devices will need to be connected. So everything from smartphones to the smart grid to smart cities to uh, industrial uses to wearables, the number of connected devices is rapidly growing. And, you know, it's projected that the Internet of Things market is going to grow from an installed base of about 15 billion units in 2015 to more than 75 billion units by 2025. So Skyworks Solutions will be providing 40% uh, con more content in each smartphone, and they will be in a lot more devices when as 5G is rolled out. And while that's a, a slow rollout, it's, it's still coming, and it's going to be coming very soon. So I'll, I'll throw out Skyworks Solutions. Yeah, and Matt, I would assume it's a huge advantage for them too, right? To have those established relationships with the smartphone manufacturers, right? They want to work with just a couple of component suppliers that are really big and they already trust rather than a zillion smaller companies, right? Does that have anything to do with the thesis also? Yeah, so it's, it's, basically, it's basically a duopoly right now between them and Corvo that really can make this content. And it's to the smartphone maker's advantage to not just go with one of those over the other. So they both have a very uh, steady place in the market. Like no, Apple, Samsung, you know, LG, you know, any of the other major smartphone makers, they don't want there to be just one supplier uh, because then that supplier will have much more pricing power. So it's to their advantage to keep this uh, duopoly intact. And uh, so they're, they're in a really good spot, I think, competitively. Yep. Great pick, Matt. And, and you know, my company is, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to the Southern hemisphere for my company. I'm going to go with Mercado Libre, uh, which is down in South America, e-commerce powerhouse. They are hitting all time highs now a $41 billion company. You look at the chart that's basically grown straight up over the last several years because they keep consolidating their power as Latin America is buying more and more things online. I've got some interesting statistics to walk through a story here. About 15 years ago, America had about a 70% internet penetration rate. So seven out of 10 people had reliable high-speed internet in the United States um, among adults. And at that time, e-commerce in America was about 3% of total retail sales, which is interesting because today here we are at about 89% internet penetration in America. And 15 years later, e-commerce is now 12% 
of America's total retail sales, which is incredible to see the entire market grow that, that much and also the percentage of, of e-commerce grow by a factor of four during the same period. And it's a very similar story to Latin America uh, because Latin America today has got about 70% internet penetration, and that's different in different types of countries, right? Argentina is at 92%, Honduras is at 28%. But overall, 70% internet penetration, and guess what percentage of e-commerce sales they are as a total of retail sales? 3%, just like America was 15 years ago. And I think that we're just going to see the same dynamic play out in South America and in Latin America that we have in the United States. It's just a, a rising percentage of people that are internet connected, rising percentage of those people internet connected that are using e-commerce to buy things online. And Mercado Libre, Matt, I know you're a big fan of, of how they've offered digital payments, just like how eBay offered their own PayPal solution in the early days of e-commerce here in the States. Um, between payments and shipping solutions and all these extra services, Mercado Libre is just, is just capturing more and more of a take rate, of a percentage of the total gross merchandise volume that's sold on their platform. To me, that's just, a, that's just what you want to see as an investor for operating metrics. So I'm going with Mercado Libre. Uh, but between uh, Chipotle and waffling that, that Matt was saying earlier, I'm really getting kind of hungry too. So maybe I have to think of some restaurants and some retailers too for this one. Next segment, let's move on to, uh, we talked about winners and kind of hit companies hitting all-time highs. Let's talk about the other side of this. Let's talk about companies hitting 52-week lows. And I've got a fun game, as I like to do on these podcasts, where I spot up my other advisors um, with something I haven't showed them before. I put them on the spot. And this time, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to give them three companies to choose from. Each of these companies are hitting um, 52-week lows or near to 52-week lows, or they've had just a, a stock price that's gone nowhere for several years. And so I'm going to ask each of you three questions. One, are you interested in any of these three companies? Two, no. if forced, thank, thank you, Austin. I, I will pick on you first. Thank you for answering that <laughs> first part already. Uh, so first of all, um, are you interested in any of these companies? If you're forced to choose, which of them are you buying? And which of the three are you most inclined to sell? And here's the interesting wrinkle about this game is that all three of these companies were previously the largest company in the S&P 500 index, meaning they had the largest market cap in the entire stock market at one point in their life. And so the three companies are General Electric, GE, IBM, and ExxonMobil. And before uh, I jump in, I'm, I'm going to give everybody a chance to think about this for a second. Just to throw some stats out there, GE hit its peak market cap of $600 billion in August 2000. It's now a $60 billion company today, so down 90% in 20 years. IBM um, was the largest um, contributor to the S&P 500 for, for seven years between 1982 and 1988, hit a peak of $250 billion as a market cap in 1999 now $108 billion market cap. And then ExxonMobil uh, hit its peak market cap, $528 billion in 2007. Now I've been a $200 billion company. Austin, I got to start with you because you've already chimed in with your answer for the first question. What do you think about those three? Well, first of all, if anybody listening works at any of these companies, um, thank you for your hard work. And we mean no disrespect, but these stocks are awful. What is the question, Simon? Which, if I have to, 
I have to sell one of them. So Austin, you're not interested in, in any of these, but if I'm forcing you to buy one of them, which are you buying and which one are you the fastest to sell of those three? Oh, if I had to buy one, I, I guess if I had to buy one, it would be IBM just because it's kind of a tech company, but not really a tech company anymore. Um, and at least they purchased Red Hat, which is like maybe, maybe there's some innovation going on there. So I guess that would be the one I purchased. The one I sell, General Electric is just, it's just cursed. Um, I think I would sell Gen General Electric, but I would, I would not want any of them on an island with me if, if I was on Survivor. I would, I would kick them all <laughs> off the island. <laughs> all kicked off the island. Fair enough, Austin. Matt, Matt Cochran, what do you think? Wow. So interested in them i mean not not really however i think you could make possibly an interesting case for exxon mobil oil is very low and beat up right now because of supply issues and demand issues people were staying at home they were not commuting to work it has an eight percent dividend yield uh you know it has a lot of uh long-term assets and I don't think, you know, the world's need for oil will be over anytime soon. So I think you could make an interesting case for ExxonMobil, being that it's so low right now. Uh, forced to sell, I would sell IBM. I just see, I just feel like it's a dying tech dinosaur. And it'll be a slow, slow death. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard for some of these companies to get off of their services and their mainframes. Uh, in fact, I don't even want to predict their demise, but they are just a shell of what they used to be. And, and, you know, inevitably, I feel like every time I talk about IBM, somebody will throw out how many patents uh, they, they come out with every year. And they, they just, they, they print patents like nobody's business over there. But, you know, Philip Fisher in his book, uh, Common, Common Stocks and Extraordinary Returns or Uncommon, Pro Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, you know, he talked about patents actually uh, with tech companies in particular. And he said a lot of times tech companies uh, where the innovation rate or the innovation has just gone away and died will hide behind patents. And he wrote that like 50 years ago. And I feel like though that is that very much describes where IBM is today. So forced to buy, I would buy ExxonMobil uh, with an 8% dividend yield and very real long-term assets, forced to sell, I would sell IBM. And GE to me is just a black box. I don't, I don't understand it at all. Ah, you're going to make me do this, aren't you, Simon? I don't like this game. That's right. I'm this, putting you on the spot. This is my favorite part of the podcast. Every time. All right. Um, I, I am so disinterested in all these three stocks. It's not even funny. And, uh, you know, the funny, <laughs> incidentally, I actually found some old brokerage statements because um, I was like, what did I buy and sell, you know, 10 years ago? And, and GE was one of those stocks I actually held. Um, I think it was a little after the crash um, 2009 through like mid 2010. And uh, I feel like I sold it and made a, a tidy little profit, but I, I felt a little guilty about it because part of the reason I sold it was because I knew so very little about all the moving parts. And I kind of came to that realization. I'm like, I just don't want to hold this anymore. And uh, 
I, I'm kind of in the same place with it. I think if I was, if I had to sell any one of those, it would be GE at this point. Um, IBM, I've sort of always been neutral, you know, even though it's, you know, one of, one of those old Warren Buffett holdings, you know, that, and when everyone was touting it because he owned it. Um, but there, you know, I'm, I'm kind of with Matt. There might actually be a case for owning ExxonMobil. Uh, if I had to buy one of those three um, ExxonMobil, I, I think its dividend was, it was like seven and a half percent last I looked, just, just briefly looking at it. Yeah, it's it's just were, shy of 8%. Yeah. And they're going to try yeah. and maintain that dividend as best they could. Um, and, and yeah, if oil, um, you know, comes back and, you know, travel kind of resumes and, and uh, I think there's, there are some potential catalysts, uh, in play for ExxonMobil. So, uh, I don't think you'll, you'll see me trumpeting a purchase like that on Twitter because I don't think it'll happen. But if I had to choose between the three, it'd probably be ExxonMobil. Well, well, gentlemen, I will be the lone wolf and say that there is only one of those companies that I do have a, a partial interest in. Um, is it ExxonMobil? Would, would anyone want to guess? I mean, I mean, do you want to guess? I'd guess ExxonMobil. Exxon. Yeah, Exxon. And that is right. It is Exxon. <laughs> I, I did used to work for a, uh, not for Exxon, but for one of their competitors, large oil company. And uh, Exxon was just generally regarded as the best capital budgeter in the, in the industry, right? And so agreed mm-hmm. that uh, oil is, is being displaced. Uh, you know, internal combustion engines are uh, giving way to electric vehicles, obviously, uh, around the world. But I, I think that it's, it's not an immediate thing. I think that Exxon, in my opinion, is, is the buy of the three of those companies. Um, like you yeah. said, keeping, keeping the dividend at, at whatever it takes and um, really just a conservatively run um, good capital allocating business. And my sell, and again, disclaimer that I used to work for this company, as well, um, is GE. I, I think the GE's competitive advantages used to be as an industrial conglomerate, you know, when money and, and the finance arm of that business was key, uh, that it could kind of allocate from um, these cash cow businesses to these, these growth markets like aircraft engines and healthcare. And I think that that's just a, it's a, it's a, that's a tough business to be that diversified like they are right now. And IBM somewhere in the middle. I, I, I'm not too stoked about IBM, but I'm, I'm not terribly, terribly bearish either. They've got some, some advantages, a ton of patents, like you guys said too. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed the game. I, I certainly had more fun than you guys did because I knew the companies in advance. It was a giant <laughs> grimace emoji from all I, of It was a horrible you. game. <laughs> I thought it was a great, great game. Exactly what I, the type of game I think about playing with my friends. <laughs> we, should, uh, we should ask our millions of followers on Twitter and by millions, I mean not millions. Uh, we should ask that question on Twitter and see what everyone says. And Austin, you did read my mind, just like you, you were able to answer the question before I even said the companies. Once again, uh, beating me to the punch on this. But yes, I would love to hear your thoughts as well. We're info at seveninvesting.com on email. We're at seveninvesting on Twitter. Uh, tell us which of those three companies you would be buying and which one you'd be quick to sell. And then also if there's any companies that are hitting all-time highs that you're really interested in as well right now. We'd love to hear your feedback too. We'd love to retweet it and post it up on our, on our Twitter post as well too. Uh, so we're, ending, we're coming to the end of the program here. I would like to finalize with actually a post uh, that Matt Cochran put up very recently, which I think is very interesting that we should be talking about a little bit more often too. And that is as parents, how do we get our kids interested in investing? 
We've got a whole new generation coming up. We think stock market investing is obviously very important. Matt, I might just hand it to you so you can talk a little bit about your post and how you started thinking about this. Well, uh, first of all, the, the post itself was prompted by uh, Brian Feroldi, uh, you know, a former colleague and a good friend to all of us. Uh, and if you're not following him on Twitter, you should be. But, um, you know, look, as in anything with parenting, you know, when there's, when there's like an important value you want to pass on to your kids, you have to talk about it and you have to be intentional about it, I think. So what I've done is, is once when my oldest turned 10, uh, it was like, it was during Christmas vacation and the timing of that, I'll tell you why in a, in a minute, but like uh, we had, op- we had just opened up Coverdell ESA accounts with the kids, which is a way to save for college. But unlike 529 plans, you can actually buy individual stocks in them. But the contribution limit is only $2,000. So it's not much. And we put excess savings into 529 accounts with them. But, um, you know, we talked a little about finances. And I remember, like, the, the main thing I just wanted to get across to them was that borrowing money will cost you money and saving money will earn you money. And, like, at that stage, that's really all I wanted them to get. And then we talked about stocks and how they represented pieces of companies and, uh, and he made a list and then we went through and ranked them. And that's kind of where as a parent, you can, you can kind of steer them a little bit. Like one of the companies on, on my son's list was like party city because he had bought his Halloween costume from them, you know? So, you know, you can steer them away from companies like that, but steer them towards Disney, which was also on his list, you know, or Amazon. And I feel like I actually, I think those were his first two purchases. You know, we had $2,000 and we put a thousand dollars towards each. Um, you know, which I think Amazon, that was just one share, uh, at the time. And then every, as every, I have four kids and as, and when they hit 10, I bring them in on these annual conversations and, uh, and then they make joint decisions about what companies they're going to buy for their Coverdell accounts. But, uh, I really, um, you know, I talk to them about it once a year because I feel like that's, that's a good time unless they bring it up during the year. And, and they do, they ask questions or they'll, every once in a while they'll ask like, Hey, Hey dad, how's, you know, how's Disney doing or how's EA doing, you know, or a company they're interested in, or they know they own. And, uh, but I just think it's, uh, it's important to, it doesn't have to be with a Coverdell account. That's just the path we chose. Um, but, but we, you know, we need to save for college for them. So it, it, for us, it worked, but, um, but, you know, as in anything, when you want to pass on values to your children, I feel like you, you just be intentional and you set aside time and, and you, you talk to them about it. I, Love that thread. And uh, I am sad that I didn't actually respond to it on Twitter because ironically, I was actually camping well, with my family. You, so This is your chance to apologize <laughs> to Matt. I'm so Steve. sorry. So go ahead. But uh, yeah, I was spending time with family for Memorial Day weekend. It was fantastic. Um, but I, I got back and I had some time to kind of think about uh, the whole process. Um, and really, uh, I think it is a process to to get your kids to start investing. Um, you can't just sit them down and be like, all right, we're going to learn about income statements today, children. Like they're just going to gloss over. Um, so I treat everyday moments as teachable investing moments. Now I think about investing constantly because it's what, you know, we do. And, uh, it's, it's really not necessarily by just making them dive right into their brokerage accounts or, or learning about that nitty gritty, but, but, you know, noting they could own part of the brand that they love and share in their success. And that's easy to do with big consumer facing companies like Netflix and Disney and Nike and Amazon. 
but it's also something you can do with less obvious things. Like my youngest is obsessed with trucks and trailers. And uh, I'll say to my other kids, you know, when he points out a car transport trailer, car carriers, and they almost always have a control logo on it. And I'll just randomly drives my wife crazy. I'm sure. But uh, be like, you know, who owns that company? You know, it's Markel. They actually acquired Cottrell for 130 million five or six years ago. And, uh, you know, I might ask my kids, my dog's barking in the background. I wonder if you can hear I heard he had some opinions about that, Steve. <laughs> yeah. he, he apparently doesn't like Cottrell. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and, and you, know, you don't have to just point out brands, but I'll ask him the story, you know, why they think the price is different for the, you know, you'll have a, a name brand and a, a, the store's own brand right next to it for a couple bucks less. And, and, uh, you know, they're actually at this point starting to become more interested in the economics of selling those two products and be like, well, why would they make their own? And then we kind of get to talk about it and they'll come up to me and ask questions now about that kind of stuff. And I like to think I'm, I'm raising little, little stock analysts. And, and even if they choose to do something else for a living, when they grow up, at least they'll be comfortable with investing. And that's something I think just isn't common enough. Um, and really just planting the seeds for how businesses work. My kids are a little younger than uh, Matt and Steve's. I've got a almost five-year-old son and a two and a half-year-old daughter. So my plan to get them interested in investing is to tell them I don't want them to be interested in investing. And then they're going <laughs> to do the opposite and they'll be interested because that's, that's the stage that they're in. Um, but, you know, it, just the approach that I try to take with them with anything is just involve them in it, whether it's getting outside and working out and being healthy um, and making it enjoyable for them and challenging for them and letting them learn things and struggle through things on their own. And, and so when they are old enough, um, that's the approach. Another tool we use uh, when they invest in, when they pick companies for the year, uh, what, what I have found is awesome is YouTube. And you watch like, like a couple of videos on the company they pick. Like when we did, when they picked Amazon, we watched like a, a couple of videos on their like robots in their factories and, and things like that. And it just like, you, one, you kind of learn too, you know, like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Uh, but two, it's like a great, great educational tool that we've used for kids. Yeah, all incredible points, guys. Thanks for raising all of those. And and I think the the common thread is, is to keep the conversation going. Uh, we would definitely like to keep the conversation going with you all, whether you're talking about, you know, stocks when your kids turn 10 years old, whether you want to give us feedback for our 10th seven investing podcast here today uh, we've got some ideas on the table steve said chipotle austin said MongoDB. matt said skyworks i said mercado libre is four companies hitting all-time highs that we think have potential to go even farther what do you think about those companies what do you think about the three companies that are hitting those 52-week lows we'd love to hear from you info at seveninvesting.com. if you would too uh we would love if you would subscribe on your favorite podcast player to our seven investing podcast and leave us a review as well. We, we love to hear uh, feedback from everyone listening to this podcast. And we want them to always be valuable. Steve, Matt, and Austin, thanks for the time. I uh, really appreciate another team podcast here. Once again, we are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7 Investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. Using this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.